gathering evidence. Evidence of <coughs> evidence of higher probability than any alternative. Not proof, not certainty. Yesterday we saw that the historical tradition of the revelation and the national experienced miracles is uh, with enormous empirical evidence that the, that the tradition is reliable. Today I want to talk about the Jewish survival. <coughs> the survival of the Jewish people over the last 3,000 years. I know, and you know, it goes back further than that. But historians are greatly divided. There are some who accept our picture going back 3,800 years to Abraham. There are others who think that the entire corpus of Judaism was invented in the Maccabean period. And then there are those who take positions in between. King David is about in between. So I'm going back 3,000 years to King David. Uh, before that, I'm not going to argue today. Now, the claim is that the Jewish people, as a distinct people with a distinct culture, survived under conditions which should have led to their disappearance. The claim is not that we are the oldest culture. This has nothing to do with the age of the culture. I think we are anyway. But that's not the claim. The claim is not being old. The claim is surviving when you should have disappeared. Here's an analogy. A hundred people spend the afternoon at the beach. Fifty people are sunbathing on the beach. They never get off their chairs. They're there for three hours. Fifty people are in the water. There's a sudden undertow. The undertow pulls the fifty underwater for a half hour. Forty-eight die. Two come out from underwater at a half hour alive. Whose experience at the beach needs a special explanation? Not the fifty in the chairs, even though they've been there for three hours. Because people sitting in a chair should survive the afternoon. Not the people who drowned a half hour underwater should drown you. That's what you naturally expect. What needs an explanation is the two people who survived. Even though they only survived for a half hour. The people in the chair survived for three hours. The length of time makes no difference. The point is, the people underwater should have drowned. The argument is that the Jewish people in this 3,000 year period should have gone to pieces, should have dis uh, lost their individuality and assimilated a dozen times over and did not. Whereas other groups, maybe Hinduism is as old or older, I don't think it is, but maybe it is, but the argument will be that they've existed maybe as long as we have, but there's no reason for them to have disappeared. So their existence, as long as it is, is of no interest to, uh, to this argument. Same with Confucianism, which is certainly younger, but still impressively old, 2,500 years old. It's not relevant to this argument. Now, um, I'm going to divide this 3,000-year period into two sections. The first thousand years from King David to the fall of the Second Temple, and then the last two thousand years. In each case, I'm going to point out some important facts about the period, and then we will look at the popular efforts at explaining Jewish survival, and we will compare the explanations with the facts. I don't know if that sounds radical to you. Um, I suppose you naturally expect that if you have explanations that are designed to explain facts, that someone would compare the explanation with the facts to see whether they fit. It sounds like elementary ABCs. The, sh the shocking thing is that in no case is this actually done. The people who propose the explanations don't bother to check whether they fit the facts afterwards or not. And therefore, um, in scientific terms, it's really dreadful. The whole the logical status of these theories is dreadful. But I'll do it for you, briefly, and uh, then I think you'll see, as I have found, that destinations really have no, uh, no consequence. Okay, let's start with a review of the facts. In the ancient period, from King David to the fall of the Second Temple, you have a group of people who are numerically very small, 
in terms of their political power and economic power, insignificant. Even at its greatest, when we talk about the kingdom of Solomon, uh, in terms of comparison to the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, it's a small change. Um, now, during that period, the ideology of the Jewish people is see if I can think of a really ugly but memorable term. Uniquely unique. How's that? Uniquely unique. Here's what I mean. Are your fingerprints unique? Sort of. Presumably nobody else has fingerprints identical to you. But notice, so are mine unique. And so is everybody else's unique. So, although your fingerprints are unique, you're exactly the same as everybody else in having unique fingerprints. That's just one time unique. But now, let's imagine that everybody in the world has exactly 10,463 hairs on his head. You alone have 12,000. Then you are what I call uniquely unique, because you have a feature that's different from the feature which everybody else shares identically. That's uniquely unique. That's not like fingerprints. Now, the beliefs of the Jewish people during that period are uniquely unique. Sure, everybody's beliefs differ from everybody else's. They have different names for the gods, and they, you know, variations on myths. But the categories of beliefs, the qualities of beliefs, the structure of the beliefs are shared in common. The Jewish people's beliefs during that period are not only different, but they are different from all the elements that the other beliefs share in common. Here are some points of difference. Monotheism. There's no ancient, no ancient um, system, belief system, certainly not in our area of the world, that is monotheistic. They're all polytheistic. Okay, some of you may have heard of a one-generation experiment in Egypt under Iknatan where he declared the sun as the god that they will worship. Of course, as historians point out, it's not exactly monotheism because Ignatan himself is also a god. Can't leave the the pharaoh, he's also a god. So there are really two, not one. And this was considered to be such an aberration that after he died, they obliterated his temples and his his places of worship and went back to the ancient uh, polytheistic views. There's no monotheism. In the, in the ancient world. Secondly, the Jewish belief is that God has no physical representation. No form, no picture, no likeness. All the others have strict representation for their gods as humans or as animals of various kinds. And that's why they have pictures and statues. Third, the Jewish conception of God is that God is all-powerful, with no limitations on his power whatsoever. No ancient religion has that character. All the religions recognize limits on the powers of the gods. Partly because each god is limited by the powers of other gods. And sometimes there are forces that are more powerful than all the gods together. Like in Greek religion, fate is more powerful than all the gods. Fifth is moral perfection. Uh, Zeus becomes the chief god of the Greeks by murdering his father, who was the prior chief god. That's homicide and uh, deicide combined into one. That's okay. They're gods. God's the same There's no complaint or something like that. The only ancient religion to declare God as morally perfect is Judaism. And, you may like this, and you may not like this, but as a matter of fact, the only ancient belief system which is completely and thoroughly anti-homosexual is Judaism. All ancient peoples, all ancient religions, all ancient cultures other than Judaism 
recognize homosexuality in some part of their life as natural, normal, and appropriate. Now, what you have to picture is, as I said, a small group of people with no significant achievements. Not money, not power, not uh, uh, industry, not science, not mathematics. Surviving in the middle of a vast area of civilizations, the crossroads of three continents, as it's popularly put, so that every, every conqueror marches through our backyard, feeling our chickens, and every major culture is felt in our area, and we are uniquely unique in our beliefs and maintain them. The question is, how is this possible? How is this to be explained that we are able to maintain our beliefs under those conditions? If we had an empire, so then you could say the beliefs are maintained as an offshoot of the empire. Many people pledge allegiance to the Roman God because that way they could become Roman citizens. It paid to be a citizen of Rome. So the religion could be preserved as an afterthought, as a byproduct. But we didn't have it. Furthermore, during this period, there were a number of cultural experiments large percentages of Jews who transformed the tradition. When Jews worshipped Baal, for example, which happened throughout the first temple period, it isn't as if they gave up Judaism. In their minds, it wasn't either or. It's what's called syncretism. A little of this, a little of that. Put together into a kind of uneasy children. But there were significant numbers of Jews who worshipped Bob. In the Babylonian exile, there was a significant group of Jews who intermarried with the Babylonians and amalgamated Judaism to the Babylonian milieu. In the Second Temple period, you had the Hellenistic Jews who adopted Greek philosophy and many Greek beliefs. By the way, we have from that period the remains of a translation of the Passover Haggadah into Greek. For those Jews for whom reading it in the original was difficult, so they had a Greek translation. Sort of like the Maxwell House of God that we have today. For, you know, Jews whose once a year performance is, is Passover. And at the end of the period, you have the Sadducees who denied the oral tradition. You had a number of cultural experiments modifying, transforming, changing the traditional formula. And as you all know, all those groups disappeared. That's the ancient period. In the last 2,000 years, Jews have been scattered all over the Earth's surface. No central authority. No police power. Minorities within differing majority cultures, widely differing majority cultures, under pagan Rome, in barbarian Arabia, up until the rise of Islam in the 7th century. And then, under Christianity, and later under Islam, in widely different physical environments, consider Yemen and Poland. The Jews in Yemen go back at least 1,500 years. The Jews in Poland went back 1,000 years. Now, what would you expect if you were a liberal sociologist I'm not recommending becoming a liberal sociologist, but I'm just asking you to imagine if you're a liberal sociologist and you are predicting what you expect for minority groups under these vastly different social, political, religious, and physical environments for a period of 30 generations or 50 generations, what would you expect? I think you would expect that these groups would assimilate into their surroundings. And that would mean that Polish Jews and Yemenite Jews in the 20th century should have nothing in common. The truth is, they have almost everything in common. They can eat at each other's tables, marry each other's children, pray in each other's synagogues. They recognize each other as members of the same religious denomination. The same religious group. That's astonishing. No other group has had a history even remotely resembling that experience. Think of Christianity in the same period. Christianity has become hundreds of differing sects 
in the same period of time. And they had the advantage of being the majority culture and having police power and having sexual authority, having vast sums of money available to them, certain periods, whole armies available to them. And they became hundreds of warring groups, hundreds of, of different, different groups. Whereas that did not happen to us. If you want a point of comparison, some, someone raised this to me a couple of years ago, Internet Exchange, and asked about the experience of the gypsies. Haven't the gypsies been scattered minorities for a thousand years, and don't they have their own gypsy identity? Have they preserved it for a thousand years? Okay, probably 2,000, but it's 1,000. Still, it's a long period of time, and a very impressive achievement. Why are we so convinced that our experience is unique? So I did a little research by contacting the Romani people's websites. And this is what I discovered. In the worldwide gypsy community, there are Catholic gypsies and Protestant gypsies and Eastern Orthodox gypsies and Muslim gypsies. They tend to take the religion of the place in which they live. Um... In terms of their cultural values, they are gypsy groups that have a principle of being illiterate. They will not learn to read and write. And there are others who feel literacy is extremely important. The Romani peoples have no history of their own experience. They have no records of where they've come from, why they left, where they went, of their origins. Historians and linguists believe that they came from northern India about a thousand years ago, probably as mercenary soldiers, and spread out slowly through Europe, and from there spread elsewhere. But that's only on the basis of taking the Romani dialect and analyzing it in terms of what they know from the languages spoken in India about a thousand years ago, in northern India. But they themselves have lost all record of their history. What do they share in common? A dialect and... Physical features, because they tend to inter- intermarry with their own, and certain common superstitions. That's about it. Indeed, the websites say, you should not speak of Romani culture, you should speak of Romani cultures. Because there isn't anything that they have in common that could be called a single culture. Now, I think that's about right. That's what we expect. They've lost 90% of their cultures. What they have is the 10% traffics, which are enough to identify them as a different group, but that's all. And we have preserved 90% of our culture and lost 10% of the traffics. We have all the texts, we have all the same beliefs, we share each other's literature, laws, practices, customs. Yes, there are some differences, but they're, they're, they are extremely minor. They're minor compared to the Christians, let alone compared to the, to the Romani people who have lost almost everything. We've preserved our history. So, I think that uh, the Romani people are an illustration of how unique the Jewish uh, cultural experience is. By the way, one point of, of, uh, of, of um, distinction that's uh, important. I mentioned the variety of Christian groups. This is important for this lecture and for for other matters as well. The variety of Christian groups has nothing in common with the variety of Jewish groups, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, humanist, liberal, etc. The two factors are entirely different from one another. There is no reform Christianity. There's no such thing as there is reform Judaism. Reform Judaism says, we know better than Moses. We know better than the Torah. We know better than the Bible. Those people were primitive, they had certain important insights, and they were subject to the prejudices of their times, and the limitations of their times, and we know better. Yes, Moses said, don't eat pigs. We do eat pigs, because we know better than Moses. There's no Christian group that says they know better than the founder of Christianity. None. There's no Muslim group that says they know better than Mohammed. 
There's no Buddhist group that says, well, Buddha started meditation, you know, but we've developed it beyond. We can out-meditate Buddha. After all, we've been going for 2,000 years, you know. We're just, we're just better trained than he was. He deserves respect as the founder of the practice, but we've certainly made progress beyond it. No Buddhist says that. The only religion that has a reform, a reform movement, and the rest of the reformist movements is Judaism. All the Christian groups believe that they have the original teachings of their family, and they're faithful to them. They just disagree as to what the teachings were. And the same with the Buddhist groups, and the same with the, with the Muslim groups. They all believe that they alone are following the dictates of the original founder of the religion. So those who, in Jewish terms, reject the religion, they're not part of this complex of what happens to the original information. There's no Reformed Jew who says, yes, Rabbi Akiva agreed with me, he also smoked cigarettes on Saturdays. Every Reformed Jew knows that the Rabbi Akiva kept Shabbos, only the Reformed Jews know better than Rabbi Akiva. So if you ask how we preserved our information, which is the question that we're, ra- we're raising now, we have preserved our information whereas these other groups have lost it. You cannot reconstruct what original Christianity was because there are hundreds of different groups, all of whom say that they alone have what original Christianity was. You cannot reconstruct what, what Muhammad originally said or meant because there are different groups differing widely as to what, as to what he said and meant. Same true with Buddha. Was Buddha a god or wasn't he? The majority of Buddhists think he was and the minority who think that he wasn't. There's no way to reconstruct the original information. The original information has been lost. In our case, the original information has been preserved, just as some people don't choose to live by it. So that, that's an entirely different uh, circumstance. That's our condition. Now, yeah, likewise, in the, in the last 2,000 years, there have been some cultural experiments. The uh, Karaites, again, resurrected the idea of rejecting the, the oral tradition. And for about uh, 500 years, the Karaite group was a strong, well-developed, they had their own rabbis, they had their own yeshivas. It was active competition in, in, Islam, in Islamic lands for the patronage of the, of the Muslim rulers. It was a very difficult period. Around the 16th century, they went into decline. Today, there are about 35,000 Karaites worldwide. This again comes from their websites. They're scattered. They have no central uh, bodies of scholarship. They're training, uh, training institutes. And it looks like they're also on the way out. You have the Moranos in Spain and Portugal who have pretended to be Christians in the daytime and tried to maintain their uh, Jewish identity underground. This is forbidden by Jewish law. One is not allowed to pretend to belong to other religion, even on threat of death. And they disappeared. Although there are some Spanish and Portuguese Catholics with funny customs, like lighting candles in the basement every Friday night. And if you ask them why they do that, they say, well, it's a custom in the family. We don't exactly know where they came from, but there are others who kiss door jams. And if you ask them why they kiss the door jams, it's a family custom. You know? So here you see the leftovers of the Murano influence, but it's all within the Christian church now. It has nothing to do with, uh, with being Jewish. So, what needs to be explained is the survival of Jewish, the Jewish belief system, Jewish practice, Jewish culture, Jewish values. In the first thousand years, from David to the fall of the Second Temple, when we had our own independent national existence, <coughs> for all but less than a century, under the Babylonian exile, we had our own independent national existence. And our beliefs were uniquely unique during that period. And during the last 2,000 years, when we were a scattered group of scattered minorities over a large portion of the Earth's surface, uh, during which time we survived, maintained our culture intact in a way that no other group has even remotely approximated. Now, I want to run through with you quickly three, three types of theories. And as I said, carry out the exercise of matching the theories with the evidence. 
which exercise is extremely instructive. I was astonished when I read these, these theories that uh, the theories presented and <coughs> had a certain intuitive appeal and after the intuitive appeal the author says, well, now I've explained it because you can just see that that's what it is, can't you? It's just obvious without bothering to go through the details. Okay. One popular theory of Jewish survival is anti-Semitism. Persecution produces survival. Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew, and that was the thesis of the whole book. If only the anti-Semites would leave us alone, we would oblige and we disappear. The solution to the Jewish problem. Don't kill them all out. No, they'll never take that. Leave them alone, and they'll just disappear. Now, the intuition is, if you persecute me, I don't like you. And if I don't like you, I'm going to spike you and I'm going to maintain my existence because you're persecuting me. If you leave me alone and invite me to join in a polite fashion, then I certainly will be willing to join you and I'll disappear. That's the intuition. Now let's compare it with the facts. Is this going to work for the first thousand years? when we were, for almost all of that period, an independent country? Is it anti-Semitism and persecution that kept us in survival? Kept our culture in survival from King David to the end of the Second Temple? Doesn't seem like a very reasonable hypothesis. When you have your own independent country, it doesn't sound like that's what's going to keep your, your culture in survival. Secondly, let's see, does persecution have this kind of effect generally? When large-scale cultures persecute minority groups, does that cause them to survive or disappear? Well, let's remember that Europe was home to dozens of pagan cultures until the Roman Empire went Christian. And then they all disappeared. How come Roman persecution didn't produce their survival? South America was home to Many native Indian cultures. Then came the Spanish and the Portuguese. How come those cultures didn't survive despite the conquerors who put them under pressure? What happened in Russia in the 20th century? The turn of the 20th century, there were approximately two and a half million identified Jews. Today there are about 50,000. One century, less than a century of persecution. What happened? Almost the entire community was wiped out in terms of survival, in terms of cultural survival. Seems to me, persecution has a pretty good record of wiping out peoples, wiping out cultures, not causing them to survive. Even in our own case, if you take Russia as an example, if you take the Morales as an example, Spain became Judenrein for 500 years. Jews never made a reassertion of their, of their identity in Spain. Now let's take the modern American experience. There, one might think, you do have some evidence. Evidence of the opposite. Modern America is the most um, accepting, tolerant, supportive environment that we have experienced in the last 2,000 years for which we should be very grateful, and we should express our gratitude. Now, what's happening in the United States? Well, as you all know, the center and left are busily assimilating themselves out of existence. That's what you would expect, according to the theory of persecution. But the right is vastly multiplying. And the further right you go, the bigger the multiplication. That's not what you would expect. If it is persecution that supports Jewish identity, Jewish continuity, Jewish cultural survival, then when you remove the persecution, you ought to see it collapse across the board. The idea that the religious right is exploding, that famous diagram from the census studies about ten years ago, taking 200 contemporary Jews from the different groups and <coughs> predicting 
how many will be represented by that 200 four generations later? And it was something like, if they're assimilated, then out of the 200, they'll have 16. And if they're reform out of the 200, you'll have 35. And if they're conservative out of the 200, you'll have 75. And if they're modern orthodox out of the 200, you'll have 600. And if they're right-wing out of the 200, you'll have 4,000. Now, this was a prediction of a non-orthodox population study. It was orthodox, of course, you couldn't trust it. It would be all propaganda. But this is non-orthodox. Everything is accurate and clear and objective and fair and very scholarly. And that's what they reported. So, the religious right is exploding in terms of its population. That is not what you would expect if you think that it's persecution that maintains Jewish survival. So, this theory just doesn't fit the facts. And therefore, it ought to be abandoned. It isn't. You'll come across it time and time again. That's because people don't go through the exercise of fitting into the facts. Okay, another sort of theory. Different cultures have different natural talents. The Russians are good at writing novels. The Dutch are good at painting. The Americans are good at inventing technology. The Japanese are good at marketing. American technology. <laughs> Maybe the Jews are good at surviving. They're just good at it. Maybe it's a genius or a gene or a combination. We just have a talent for producing long-lasting cultural products. Maybe that's it. But that's not it because of the cultural experiments that I mentioned. What happened to the Baal-worshipping Jews of the First Temple and the Babylonian-assimilated Jews of the Babylonian exile and the Hellenistic Jews of the Second Temple and the Sadducees at the end of the Second Temple and the Karaites and the Moranos? What happened to them? They're all Jews. They all belong to the same original culture. They created cultural products. They all disappeared. So it doesn't seem that... No, Moranos... I'm basically a Yeah, but um, you were not brought up as a Spanish Jew on the basis of Morano ancestors. Well, see, I, I'm from Italy, okay, so, so basically, Sephardim of, uh, of Spain and southern Italy, I was also from southern Italy, then my family moved north to Trieste. Uh, so, whenever there was a persecution, and including World War II, we would say, yes, we're Catholic, just to save our lives. That's how we saved ourselves. Yeah. We're not supposed to do that by law. We know. Correct. Correct. You're not supposed to do that by law. And if you ended up in Italy, it means you didn't stay in Spain. Your family didn't stay in Spain or in Portugal and, and, and the Moranos there. They moved. Those were the ones who survived. But the ones who, who, uh, who stayed in Spain and Portugal who were hundreds of thousands, and they, and, they remained, and, and they remained there and pretended to be Catholics, they all disappeared. Spain and Portugal became Jew-free for 500 years. There were no identified Jews in, in, in Spain and Portugal for 500, for 500 years. Until the 20th century. But they, officially, they were not identified because they were basically saying, we're Catholics. I know of Portuguese Jews and Spanish Jews today. Sephardi, whose families... Since uh, the Inquisition, 1492, would say we are Catholics, and and to this day, I can I can give you some names if you want. Who lived in Spain for 500 years as a continuous family practicing Judaism and saying they were Catholics? Yes. Well, I would like to see. Uh, I would like to see. Uh, Most of them, lots left that I know of today, families, and I and I met uh, families in America. We just moved from Spain to America. Uh, they're Moranos. And I know t to this day, uh, they're, they're Jews, Sephardi Jews. I mean, of course, many died, either left or just when they think. But I, I, I have studied the history. Well, if you're talking about a population of hundreds of thousands of people, and yeah. that you're talking about maybe 1%, half a percent, right? well, what are we talking about? We're we talking about 10,000 people? Probably not. 5,000 people? Yeah. We're talking about extremists. Well, in Spain today, okay, uh, Spanish Jews, Jews today are about 40,000, because 80,000 were saved by Franco, number one. So today, 40,000. So uh, of those, 
that are actually Murano's for sure, 10,000. And you say, Murano fa- families who go back 500 years in Spain and maintain their Jewish existence from, from that time? Well, Maimonides was basically a Murano. No. Well, he, he fled. He fled. So, so it's, it's by Murano you mean people who fled because of the persecution. That's not the way I'm using the term. I'm using the term people who pretended to be Catholics and tried to maintain their identity uh, uh, in secret. Yes. To this day in Portugal, there are uh, Jewish communities who, who some say they're Jewish, some say they're Catholic, and but remain Jewish. I know that's the fact. Well, I would like to see, I would like to see the document, because my, my sources don't say that the Jews in Spain, many of them came into Spain fleeing, uh, fleeing Hitler. They went, they went to Spain because it was a place that was a, was, was a refuge. The idea that there are there's some sizable population that can trace their history back from the, from the, uh, from the uh, Inquisition to the present that maintained their identity as Jews, even though in public they declared themselves to be Christians. My information says that that's not true. There may be a few, a few families here and there. I mean, okay. But you're talking about a population of 100 500 for sure. 500 for sure. I mean, 500 families. I would like to see the... I would like to see the... Okay. You're talking about a population of, of hundreds of thousands of people and if 500 families remain, that means that 98% of the population is wiped out. Which is what, what I wanted to show. Okay, so it's not talent and, and um, genes and, and genes. Now, the last type of explanation, which is the most popular, is this. Maybe Judaism, its beliefs and its practices, have a natural survival value. Certain laws, certain customs, certain values naturally perpetuate themselves. So, let's say, kashas. If you can't eat at somebody else's table, that's going to set up a barrier, a social barrier. And because it's a social barrier, people who have that law are more likely to survive. Prohibition against intermarriage. Obviously, if you can't intermarry with the people around you, that's going to set up a social barrier. And it'll mean you're more likely to survive. As popular as this kind of explanation is, and as natural as it is, it's really incompetent. I'll explain to you why. First of all, what we're trying to explain is how Judaism survived when so many other cultures went extinct. Remember, we're talking about survival under conditions which should have driven us to disappear. How do we know they should have driven us to disappear? Because they drove lots of other people to disappear. So if you're trying to explain how we survived when they disappeared, the first thing you should ask is, these features that you are citing of Judaism, what about the other people who disappeared? Did they have them also or not? If we have them, and they had them, and they disappeared then our having them can't explain why we survived. Right? If ten people have an illness, and ten people take the same drug, and one recovers and nine do not, he can't say it's the drug that caused them to recover. This question isn't even asked. It's not even asked by the people who promote the features of Judaism as a survival mechanism. They don't even ask whether the other, other cultures had them or not. Now, I happen to have done a little research. It turns out that in the ancient world, all Every culture had food taboos. So, if it's food taboos that are doing it, it's not obvious why it shouldn't have preserved all those other cultures. And so it goes with each of them. If you talk about holidays, if you talk about having your own uh, language, if you talk about stressing community life, all the ancient religions had holidays, all the ancient religions had, had communal uh, Sacrifices and communal, communal uh, holidays and communal, communal uh, affairs. Many of the cases, the religion and the state were, were fused into one, so that the community, the religious community and the state were one entity. So, number one, these features that are pointed to of Judaism that are supposed to have natural survival value, there's no reason, no evidence that they're unique, which they have to be to do the explaining that they're supposed to do. <clears throat> number two now this is a bit subtle so I, I ask you to 
focus on this. It can't be that they're saying people who keep kosher are more likely to survive as Jews than people who do not. can't be saying that. Because that's obvious. Obviously, if you have two Jews, one keeps kosher and one doesn't, the first one is more likely to maintain his Jewish identity than the second. Because the first one has a stronger identity. The claim can't be, here's how Judaism survived. People who kept kosher were more likely to keep kosher. That's obvious. That's true for any group, for any custom that they have. A Greek who offered sacrifices to the Greek God is more likely to maintain his Greek identity than a Greek who did not offer sacrifices to the Greek God. That's true for any group, for any culture, for any custom. The claim has to be that writing the rule into the rule books promotes survival. Having a system with this rule in is more likely to survive than a system with the rule out. Can't presuppose the rules being followed. But once you put it like that, it's not obvious at all. Let's take kashas. Imagine Judaism as it is with kashas versus Judaism star, J star, without kashas. Everything else the same, but without kashas. Now let's imagine Judaism versus J star for real people living in the real world. And let's see which one is more likely to survive under pressure. Here's the scenario. We're talking about the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1912. It's a large immigrant community. There are Jews there and Irish and Greeks and uh, Poles, and Italians, all different kinds of people. And uh, there's considerable anti-Semitism as there is throughout the Christian world. A new Jew uh, comes in off the boat, no job, doesn't know the ropes, almost no English. A local Italian fellow takes a liking to him and says, listen, you new on the block, leave it to me, I'll help you. Get into trouble, just tell me who's the problem, I'll take care of it. I'll try to find you a job, I'll introduce you to the right people. Terrific. Terrific. And he really is helpful. He really does. After a few weeks, the Italian says, my Jewish friend, come over for dinner. We'd like to have you for dinner. We'd like to have you over to share our dinner. <laughs> We're having veal parmesan. A wonderful Italian dish. That's veal cooked in cheese, in case you don't know what it is. Tastes terrific. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, I had it. <laughs> Along with a bunch of other things. Now, um, what is you going to do? Not go to dinner might mean to offend his Italian friend, which means he'll lose a very important ally. Go to dinner means he's violating cautious. We can imagine that on some occasions, the Jew will give in to the temptation and say, all right, I'll go this time after all. I need the Italian. And I can't afford to, uh, to offend him. Then he's broken a law of kashrus. If he breaks the law of kashrus, he's broken a Jewish rule. If he's broken a Jewish rule, then his connection to the Jewish community and to Jewish practice has become weaker. Because the pressure caused him to violate this Jewish rule, his connection to the Jewish community and to Jewish practice has become weaker. Now let's replay the same scenario under J. Star. He comes to New York, the Italian befriends him, says, come to dinner, and the Jew says, terrific, you know, I'd love to join him. And he joins him, and he eats a veal parmesan, and he goes back, and he's just the same faithful Jew that he was before. Nothing has changed, because J. Star has no conscious rules. So he has not weakened his connection to the Jewish community at all, and to Jewish practice. seems to me that under this scenario, Cassius works against survival, not for survival. Now, if you use your imagination, you can dream up dozens of scenarios on both sides. Cases in which it will work for, and cases in which it will work against. Remember again, we're not talking about a person who keeps kosher. 
If he keeps kosher, of course he's more likely to have a Jewish identity than someone who doesn't keep kosher. We're talking about putting kosher into the rule book. Whether the being in the rule book will help. Intermarriage. Um, one historian writes that in the Second Temple period, the population of Jews in, 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 in the land of Israel was, was so disorganized and so scattered that it was very difficult to find another Jew to marry. Which meant there was rampant intermarriage. Now that's what he says. I don't know if he's right or wrong, but that's what he says. Imagine now that you have a Judaism and, Jew, and J-Star. Judaism says you can't. To marry J-Star says you can't. Well, a Jew intermarries, according to our system, is out. He's out. He's finished. According to J-Star, he can intermarry and bring up the children as Jews and bring the spouse in and, like some other groups, you know, preach and practice. And you don't have to lose it. Is it obvious that the prohibition against, uh, against intermarriage is going to be a point in favor of survival? This isn't obvious. So, um, this intuition that the rule is automatically going to promote survival is an intuition that does not survive examination. Thirdly, even if you had rules that were unique, and you had some reason to think that they promote survival, both of which points are not substantiated, but even if you had both of them, you'd have to answer where they came from. Where did this survival package come from? Who invented it? Of course, we're talking about a secular critic now. He's not going to say God invented it. So, somebody must have invented it. Moses, or a committee, or it evolved over time. Now, was this package accepted in order to promote survival? If so, it means they could recognize that it promoted survival. If they could recognize that it promoted survival, how come nobody else recognized it? Why didn't other cultures and other religions build it into their practice so as to promote their survival. Okay, if you're very chauvinistic, you'll say, we're so smart, we thought it up, and they weren't smart enough. But they could have imitated it. Cultures did trade ideas. When one culture had a bright idea, other cultures picked it up. In particular, religious ideas were traded. Why didn't anybody else pick it up? So you say, because they didn't recognize that it was uh, had survival value. I accepted each of these things for other reasons, and they, and it just so happens that the package promoted survival. Right. They didn't see that it promoted survival, and nobody else noticed, and the fact that we continue to survive, still, nobody put together that this package is what promotes the survival. Well, then I'm skeptical that what escaped the notice of the founders, and escaped the notice of neighboring cultures for thousands of years, all of a sudden it's become obvious to us. What do we know that they didn't know? They didn't know that cautious tends to build a barrier? They didn't know that intermarriage tends to build a barrier? Those intuitions they lacked? Well, a hundred years ago, Jewish history wasn't very different from what it is today. Three hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, after fifteen hundred years of survival, right? even a thousand years ago, after a thousand years of survival, so, I'm very skeptical that, that we have somehow superior insight and superior information that enables us to see these things, especially since no historian presents anything. They just say, isn't it obvious that God should do the job? See, I've explained it. On to the next. There's no credible explanation of Jewish survival in natural terms. Now, a couple more comments. No, so, the natural thing for people to say is, it hasn't been explained yet, it'll be explained tomorrow. They even say that in biology, let alone in, in Jewish history. Well, the problem's been around for a long time. Is it possible that it'll explain tomorrow? Yes, it's also possible that there are leprechauns. Possibility is no interest to us. I told you, I'm not building a proof. I'm not building a certainty that we're right. I'm just building a probability. If you've tried to explain something for a long time, and the phenomenon has been in front of the world for a long time, and no one has come up with a remotely plausible natural explanation, one ought to at least open one's mind to the possibility that something else is doing the job. We predicted this. Torah sources all predict that the Jewish people is eternal. So we not only survived against expectations, but we predicted it from the beginning. 
usually when people predict things, things that other people don't expect, that counts in favor of their prediction having come from some valid source of knowledge. Furthermore, there is a vast, universal, uniform prejudice in the so-called scholarly academic world to treat Jewish history with the same methodology that they treat the histories of all other cultures. The reason for this prejudice is that you can only, the only way you can justify being a skeptical atheist is by treating everything out of part. So, in particular, the conditions under which cultures borrow from one another and are affected by one another are assumed to apply to Jewish history just as they apply to the history of every other culture. It totally escapes their notice that if this were true, if we would be affected by the cultures that we came in contact with, as other cultures are, if we would borrow ideas, outlook, practice, and... Uh, um, social organization, aesthetics, if we would borrow from other cultures the way, the, other, the, way, the way other human cultures do, then there wouldn't be anything left. The Jews in Yemen and the Jews in Poland would have nothing in common after a thousand and fifteen hundred years. But as I pointed out, we have everything in common. That means that the model of explanation, the model of analysis, the model of investigation is the wrong model. If your model leads you to a prediction, and the prediction turns out false, then you ought to question the model. There are historians who claim that we borrowed all sorts of ideas from the Greeks, and we borrowed ideas from India, we borrowed ideas from Persia. In each cultural setting, we adapted ideas that were relevant to that cultural setting. Well, if that's true, then Poland and Yemen ought to have nothing in common. If that model predicts it, predicts that we will go to pieces and we don't go to pieces, then there's something wrong with the model. Now, um, this has played itself out in the Kabbalah, for example, where older generations of so-called scholars held that we borrowed all of the ideas of the Kabbalah from Neoplatonism, the new generation of scholars says, well, there are points of similarity. It could be that Neoplatonists took their ideas from us rather than the other way around. Because they're appreciating that if we really did borrow in this way, there wouldn't be anything left. Now, that being the case, we have a phenomenon, a long-standing, consistent phenomenon for which there's no plausible uh, naturalistic explanation and which is promised in our literature as a commitment of God to the Jewish people. That, it seems to me, means that the survival of the Jewish people is evidence of divine providence that is maintaining the existence of the Jewish people in a way that goes against all historical expectations. Um, Rabbi from Los Angeles many years ago, I don't remember what his name was, this was a long time ago, said that uh, people told, tell him, Moses heard God speaking from the burning bush. And they say, if God would speak to me from a burning bush, I would be impressed. And maybe I would even start keeping Shabbos. But it doesn't happen. And he said, it is happening. The Jewish people have been burning for 2,000 years. And the voice of God is still speaking from the Jewish people. All you have to do is pay attention and hear. If you want to continue to discuss this at 4.30 upstairs in the library, I'll be glad to do so.